0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. My name is Clay Reichenbach. Today's episode is one that I'm extremely proud to be a part of. It's a conversation I worked very hard to set up. It's a conversation that brought me both excitement and anxiety. And to be completely honest, it's the type of conversation I hoped I'd be a part of when I started this platform. It's something that I hope to do more of because I believe in the power of conversations like this, and I certainly think they're worthy of our time and our interest. Today, my guest is J.P. Abercrombie, and J.P. is the Executive Associate Athletics Director for Culture and Engagement at the University of Notre Dame, where she is responsible for leading the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts for Notre Dame Athletics. And in this conversation, we talked All Things Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. What is it? Why does it exist? What does it look like at the ground level? And how is success measured? And we even covered that recoil that some of you may have just felt when I mentioned the topic that we're going to cover today. We covered the importance of understanding and authenticity in these type of conversations. We explore whether universities are trading excellence and merit for opportunity and diversity. We discuss the idea of standards and whether altering them is beneficial. JP shares the way she encourages discourse around these challenging topics and how she teaches students to handle disagreements with intellectual opponents. JP offers perspective on things like campus activism, Black Lives Matter on campus, George Floyd in the summer of 2020, while we also cover things like compelled behavior and groupthink and how we create environments where progress is not only possible, but it thrives. Look, this conversation's not perfect, and far from it. We agree in some spots, we disagree in others, we both shared our experiences and our ideas, and I bet we both held back at times and probably would love to go back and wordsmith in some areas. However, I think the imperfection is part of the beauty of this conversation. I even think there's beauty in my nervous stumbling over words when we get to particularly challenging topics. These conversations don't have to be perfect. They can be uncomfortable. They can even be messy. But as JP so eloquently tells us in this conversation, we must have the conversation. If it excites us, have the conversation. If it scares us, have the conversation. And I want to thank JP for that perspective. But more than anything, JP, I want to thank you for taking a chance on a cold email. I want to thank you for your patience, for your perspective, for your experience, for your counsel. I enjoyed meeting you. I enjoyed sitting with you. I enjoyed your presence. And I hope this is the first of many consequential conversations between the two of us in the future. And before we get started, everyone, JP is a leading voice and administrator for the Black Student Athlete Summit which will be held on the campus of Rice University in Houston, Texas from May 23rd to May 25th of this year. If this is a conversation that interests you and you want to learn more or be a part of it, you may want to check out the summit. You can learn more at bsasummit.org. That's bsasummit.org. Thank you so much, JP, once again. Ladies and gentlemen, JP Abercrombie. Guys, before we get going, I just want to remind you, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share the podcast. Subscribe to our socials at Examined Athlete on Instagram and Twitter. We're much more active on Instagram, but either one works to keep up with what we're doing. You can check out more about the show at www.examinedathlete.com. Your support. Your kind words, your feedback will absolutely never go unnoticed. I promise you that. Thanks, guys. All right, JP, we're live. So, this is a conversation that's been a long time in the making. We've been scared off by COVID twice.
1: Just a few weeks, you yeah. know, a couple times.
0: <laughs> I've worked. So that you listening, I've worked very hard from a cold email to JP to a <laughs> meeting that turned into an hour long conversation. To never had COVID, but we're scared off twice by it, and now we're here. So welcome to my home. Thank you for being here and sharing your thoughts.
1: Sure, thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad we were finally able to get this on on the calendar.
0: Absolutely, I'm I'm excited. I created this platform, JP because I believe in the power of conversation, I I believe in the worthiness of conversations like the ones we're going to have today. And I don't think it could be truer for any other episode than this one. We're going to cover some topics that you've dedicated a career to, maybe a lifetime to. And I think they're wildly important. I think they're sometimes misunderstood, which we'll get into. And I say all that just to say, I'm excited to have you here. I'm grateful. Thank you again for sharing your thoughts and experiences.
1: Well, thank you for that. I don't know if I'll add any clarity to these these topics and these conversations, but that's what happens when you deal with people, right? We can get a little murky and a little gray, but hopefully we can add some clarity around these things. Well,
0: sometimes the best thing that can happen is to cloud an idea for someone. If you're so clear and you think you know what diversity, equity, and inclusion is, sometimes it helps just to have a little cloud thrown in there and go, wait a second, maybe I don't know it as well. So maybe it's not that important that we're crystal clear that we'll try to be, and it just is We'll add some thoughts that maybe help some people research it a little further or help me research it a little further, but I'll tell you where we're going to start. When I first sat down with you, I sat down for advice and to tell you about what I was doing. It wasn't lost on me that you may be a little bit suspicious of my intentions, but one of the first pieces of advice that you gave me and I wrote down, I still think about, was that as I engage in these conversations and pursue these conversations, I should be excessively critical when it comes to matters of authenticity. You encourage me to prioritize honesty and openness and curiosity. So if you would start by just speaking again about authenticity, why it's so important in general, but why it's important for the conversations that you structure with young student-athletes.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny that you want to start there just because I think it's, I have this uh, unique responsibility, not only to our student-athletes, but to coaches, to staff members, to a lot of stakeholders to really help them maximize whatever environment they're in. Maximize the opportunities that are presented to them. And so when I think about meeting people where they are and helping get them where they want to go, people can often see through you. So if you come to them with a mask or this like really overinflated personality, it's like, oh, can I really be true with you? Or how are you going to help me if you've never done it yourself? And so there's some truth to what I've I've dealt with in my own personal experience in terms of having lived through it. And then there's other pieces of the story where it's like, listen, I don't know exactly what that feels like. I have had a similar or parallel experience. And here's what I've learned. And I think when you know who you are or know what your goal is and can kind of create alignment around that, that all breeds itself to kind of forming that identity that comes through authentically. And so for me, you know, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, or it's the holistic development space, or just simply engagement, we're talking about meeting people where they are. And in order to meet other people, I have to know where I am, who I am, where I'm coming from. And that helps me get where I'm going.
0: Yeah, and I think people can pick that up. I oftentimes tell people that the goal here is curiosity, never judgment. And I think the moment where it tips to judgment or it tips to fraudulence or inauthenticity, people can smell that. And like you were just saying, it kind of limits your opportunity to make progress or to make an impact with that individual.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I love the vividness of the words that we're using here. There are people who may listen to this who know my background. I'm a sociolinguist by trade. So word choice becomes very important to me in trying to navigate this world or even when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, ensuring that people are operating from the same playbook. You mentioned earlier that, that murky piece or thinking about authenticity, it's, it's about making sure that what you're trying to convey is understood by other people. If what I'm saying isn't received the way that I want it to be, or if people don't understand, I could be the smartest person in the world and that doesn't matter. I could have all the resources in the world and none of that matters if I don't know how to use it and how I use it is partially dependent on who I'm serving.
0: We used to say at our company that information will fly right by someone unless presented in a way that they'll see it. I think the same thing when I hear you speaking. Absolutely. I'm also a fan of words, but I'm oftentimes embarrassed when I try to use them in a sentence to try to make myself (laughs) look smarter. But if there is a word choice that I use that doesn't apply or something could be... In it's place that fits better. Call that out. I love that place to start is be mindful of the words you're choosing. Be mindful of your framing of a situation. I, I say that to myself about framing setbacks or failures, but I think it applies greatly. Let's start by getting into your background. Tell everyone you were quite the athlete yourself. So we don't have to spend a ton of time there, but share a bit about your athletic background. You were a student athlete yourself, and then you can get a little bit into your professional background and your career path.
1: Yeah, sure. I don't know about quite the athlete because I'm certainly retired and happily retired, or at least my needs are. Uh, (laughs) But I've had a journey that kind of spans coast to coast. So I was born on the West Coast, Southern California girl, but I grew up in the Midwest, Chicago, right here. Still uh, got a little bit of the blizzard of 99 running through my bones. But it was in, in Chicago and particularly on the South Side where I first met sports And really got a chance to learn about sport culture and and be a part of my first few teams. So I was a cross country track and field student athlete and also a basketball student athlete in high school. And then that turned into an opportunity to compete in cross country and track and field at the collegiate level. I went out east for college, you know, having been been born on the West Coast, grew up in the Midwest, I also had family in the South. So I decided to go out east to find myself.
0: You wanted to try everything.
1: Just a little (laughs) bit. You know, I dabbled.
0: I think that's a good thing.
1: (laughs) Well, for me, it was about perspective. And it was also about being able to figure out who I wanted to be. I think in each of those places where, you know, my child rearing happened, I was under the watchful eye of someone else. I lived under someone else's roof. I had their rules to kind of govern my world. And at least out in the East, no one knew me. Sure, there was someone from Chicago who ended up going to the same school that I went to, Temple University. I'm a proud owl there, too. But they didn't know me. They didn't know what I'd gone through at, at middle school or the time where I broke my arm or something. Like, you know, that that type of stuff. So, it was fun to kind of reestablish who and really redefine who I wanted to be. And that's where my love of language as a little kid really started to flourish with that pursuit of sociolinguistics academically, but I was also a student athlete who did just about everything else you can imagine outside of competition, outside of the classroom. I had a job on campus. I was super involved in extracurriculars and had some really great opportunities to really learn about collegiate athletics and, and explore career paths while I was an undergrad. And it's funny thinking about it now because people are like, oh, do you want to be an athletic director? Is, was that the path that you wanted to pursue? I didn't know you could work in college athletics until I was a sophomore in college. Don't ask me what happened my freshman year, still a little bit of a blur, but uh, it was a great experience and I'm thankful for all the opportunities that I had there. Going back to that whole perspective piece, I had enough time on the East Coast and I decided, "Mm, let's go back out West and went to UC Berkeley to get my master's. So I have a master's in the cultural studies of sport and education, a really fancy way for me to say student athlete development, higher education administration, and a little bit of law in there. And I I'm fo- glad
0: you went there because <laughs> I was about to say, could you tell me what that is?
1: <laughs> love the titles, love the acronyms that come along with it, but it never tells anybody what I actually studied. So through that program, through the CSSE program in UC Berkeley School of Education, I got to focus on language, power, and identity, which was something I'd started in my undergrad and really focus on student athlete voice. So my thesis was on SAC which is a student athlete advisory committee and how to legitimize that experience within the Division 1 and really all of NCAA experience for student athletes. So it really focused on legitimizing student athlete voice in their experience. And while I was out at UC Berkeley, I also got to really start the bulk of my collegiate athletics experience professionally. You know, I worked in the student athlete development realm. Uh, So really helping that holistic development portion of the student-athlete experience. But I dabbled on the external side as well, doing some partnerships, fan experience, quite proficient with a t-shirt gun in case anybody needs anything. And for me, that was also an opportunity to gain more perspective about college athletics as a whole. You know, we talk about holistic development more on the internal side in a student-athlete facing role, but how many holes can you have in your perspective or in your understanding and really truly call it holistic? So focusing on the external side, having that fan experience, marketing and partnerships perspective was a way for me to learn more about that other half that we didn't really talk about too much on the internal side and look at the external side. After a few years at UC Berkeley, I, again, traveled across the country. I just love to ping pong pretty much. You're Uh, not
0: scared of a new adventure. I'll say that. I admired that about you.
1: Well, I think it's been intentional and purposeful opportunities. So I've been, I've been following those. And after a few years out West with my community, my tribe, my family being predominantly in the Midwest and in the East Coast, I was kind of missing that those time zone perspectives. I felt really far behind on the Pacific Coast. So I was looking for an opportunity to get closer to home. And that came for me with the opportunity at Mississippi State to build their life skills program and really serve the student-athletes, coaches, and staff there. So I spent a few years in SEC country before coming over to Rice University in Houston, Texas, and I am happy to be back in a city. More people, more opportunities there. It's been a fun few years at Rice. came in to build and reimagine student-athlete development, and I think every six months I, I gained some more responsibilities in, in new and exciting ways. So whether it was student athlete development or alumni engagement or mental health programming, diversity, equity, inclusion. I've had a very full experience both in the athletic department and on the campus side, and my journey is not done yet.
0: Yeah, you're on your way to Notre Dame, which we'll get into. It sounds like you knew where you were headed from a very young age, which I also think is fortuitous and fortunate. Can you point to any particular experience, whether they be negative or positive as a student athlete that were foundational in your career choice?
1: Yeah, it's funny that you say it It seems like I knew where I was going because I, I don't think that's true. But I know I often get the question, which of your experiences do you favor the most? And honestly, I think as cheesy as it sounds, I think every place where I landed was what I needed at that point in time. And I credit my temple experience with helping me figure out who I wanted to be, what type of person I wanted to be, and ultimately what I valued. Because those values help me identify where to go next, or help me, you know, narrow in on that path of is this the purposeful opportunity, or is this just a potential-filled opportunity? And, and really knowing the difference there, I, I, I want to start with that temple piece, but then I also think back to high school and as lovingly as. My coaches supported me throughout the recruiting process. I had one who told me I could never compete D one. That was just their experience. <laughs> yes, I love that response. I'm
0: I'm curious. <laughs> I hear that all the time from like great performers and great actors. And mm-hmm. I'm like, who are these people that tell kids this? I, I had a, I've had had many guests that say they told me I'd never make it. And I'm going like, maybe I had just a fortunate run, but like, who the hell are these people? Oh, they and exist. where were they raised? But anyways, <laughs> go ahead.
1: They exist. And I think in, in my um, high school experience, that one coach who I still talk to today, who I've actually seen as they've come to Houston, I credit them with kind of lighting that fire in me, they knew how to motivate me. And then if I fast forward a few years, you know, I also think about my temple experience where there were several instances where people told me I couldn't. There's actually an article out there that says, tell me I can't. I'll show you I can. And then I've had some iteration of that happen at every step of the way. And and I've seen those not as roadblocks or, or obstacles, but more, I love a good scheme. So trying to figure out how to navigate those things or those naysayers, especially if they're the person that's immediately in my path, but staying focused on the things that matter most to me to help me get where I want to go.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a great answer. And we'll we'll use that to jump into what you're doing now. So as we just alluded to You're now the Executive Associate Director of Culture and Engagement at the University of Notre Dame, and you're responsible for leading their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And the main reason I wanted to have you on, JP, is understanding. The first time we met, we both acknowledged that There's a large percentage of Americans that hear your title and recoil a bit. (laughs) And actually, this very morning, I was at an appointment. I said, I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm sitting down with the chief diversity, equity, inclusion officer from Rice. And they kind of went, oh, and that's one of the reasons I want to have this conversation, because we also said in that first meeting that neither one of us believes it has to be that way if more conversations like this one take place. So let's use this part of the conversation just for that understanding purpose. Start by telling us all what is diversity, equity, and inclusion in the context of your role as an athletic director.
1: Yeah, no, it's funny thinking about that because one of the things that attracted me to the opportunity at Notre Dame was that DE&I wasn't specifically in the title, but when I think about my role at Rice serving as the chief de officer, I've had a lot of people say, oh, what is that? Or "Rice doesn't need that. Or you don't. So what? 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 <laughs> First and foremost, what? How? Explain it to me. And if I just strip it all down, you know, whether I think about my relationship with our students or the education that we provide to any of our campus constituents, DE&I, plainly put, diversity is difference. relational it's it's not I by myself identifying as a a black identified woman I I can't be diversity me as a standalone I am not diversity diversity is a difference between things or among things so there could be diversity of thought diversity of lived experience or it could be something that you phenotypically see like my skin color my race uh, gender religion sexual orientation the list can kind of go on and on with demographic factors there but diversity is just difference at its simplest essence.
0: and your role is ensuring that those differences exist within the community. Is that fair?
1: I think it's fair to say that, but I think it's also fair to say that there's a need to ensure that those differences are seen as opportunities to learn from one another, to garner strength, to make successful teams, and not seen as barriers, hindrances, or something that someone was discriminated about or for, especially in terms of their own identity, academic pursuits, and then also athletic ability. So making sure that diversity isn't seen as something negative, but that everybody is, has a space created for them to be their truest and authentic self. Equity, if I strip it down, it's, it's, is it fair? Is that fair? I think equity often gets confused with equality, which means that the two things have to be the same. So what I do for my male sport athletes has to be exactly the same as what I do for my female sport athletes or what I do for my black identified athletes and white identified athletes needs to be exactly the same. And that's not the case. Equity will often look at power uh, structures or systems that have been in play and say, hey, is this working the way that it's supposed to? I think equity often deals with the difference between intention and impact. In making sure that people understand how there is a result or there is an outcome based off what they try to do, whether they meant for it to happen that way or it actually happens that way. Actual and perceived may be different, but I think that at the core, equity is about, is this fair? And then inclusion, I like to think about that as the actions that we take as a result of thinking about things from a more diverse or equitable perspective. I like to think about, I'm very action-oriented, so I love to think about inclusion as the things we do, the verbs, the, the pieces in motion, the, the actions that we take to ensure that we're putting together the best and most successful teams, that we're providing our students, our coaches, and our staffs with the greatest opportunities for them to be their truest and authentic self. So I think about inclusion is what we're actually doing to ensure that we can fulfill those commitments and fulfill our mission and vision the way that we're supposed to.
0: Well, we're going to dig into that a little further. And I'm going to ask you a really big question. So try to keep your answer under an hour here. But <laughs> in a broad sense, why does a role like yours exist?
1: Well, if I take the athletic perspective first, I think it exists to help us win. Like that's a very simple answer for me, but teams have a Define lot of win. teams have a lot of diversity on them. So it could be winning, whether you know it or not. Winning could be the sh- the straight scoreboard, the wins and losses there. But I think when we're looking at the collegiate space, we're also talking about winning at life and, and understanding helping our young people understand themselves, helping our coaches become better teachers, helping our coaches become better managers of the the resources and the talent that they have, and then also helping our fans better understand what's going on in today's landscape. Everyone has a role to play in what that collegiate experience looks like. And so when I think about DE&I and why it's important, everyone has a role in the success of the team. And again, winning could be the simplest thing in terms of wins and losses on the board or the score there. But I think it's also about how do we help young people become thriving professionals? How do we help thriving professionals create more systems and opportunities for the next generation? And how do we ensure that people can continue to pay it forward? So that's kind of what winning means to me. I'm also very competitive just off rip. So um, my students have been known to be challenged. Well, let's say if I take a basketball example, I've been known to post a few people up. I have my Dame fives in the car if I need anything. Had some basketballs in the office just ready to go. So it, it could be that. It could be an opportunity to show like, yeah, I may be a woman, but I will push you off the block, my six foot six male post player, or that we do belong. And it's it's a way to say that winning doesn't look one type of way, doesn't sound one type of way, especially as our world continues to evolve. So I think about it as creating space and creating lanes for people to to thrive.
0: Sounds to me, if I'm saying this correctly, you're a voice within the administration that reminds people that winning and success can take different shapes and refocuses when you need refocusing, among other things. How do you measure success? What is Notre Dame look like in five or ten years if you and your team are successful?:
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and one that I just I won't have the answer to just yet, being that I'm not quite there and quite aware of all the opportunities for us to grow. But if I think about my role at Rice, you know one of the things that I came in to do was to build a thriving student athlete development program. And that was about reimagining and redefining what the student athlete experience could look like. And so for some people on the surface, it's like, well, that had nothing to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, if if I took stock of all the resources and opportunities that were there, or if I talked to the alumni and heard their experiences, it has everything to do. With diversity, equity, and inclusion. I learned that some students in certain majors weren't having an experience where they were getting their resume looked at or even that they made a resume before senior year. Some sport cultures lend themselves well to getting an internship in the summer or maybe one that lends themselves better to getting an internship throughout the academic year. And if we as an athletic department, as an administration, as a university, want all of our student athletes to have some type of experiential learning opportunity, we have to think about that more equitably. How do we ensure that that happens? What systems, what resources do we need to have in play to ensure that that happens? I don't want my football player and my women's tennis athlete to have drastically different experiences. And so, from an, a DEI lens, before it was really called a DEI lens, I'm looking at the individual teams, the demographics at play, the opportunities at play, and saying, who needs to have this and how are they getting it? And how are we as a department going to steward that opportunity for them? So that's also why it made sense for me to kind of take stage, take that stage a little bigger. I was already doing some of that work and I'd started that work earlier on in my career, uh, even back to my undergrad experience, just the research that I was able to do there on voice and identity. I think about that in the athletic context and, you know, those things are needed. There are a lot of things that happen that may not be dubbed DE&I, which you know, gets that coil and cringe moment, but they are about equity, they are about diversity, and they are about sh- ensuring that our students and staff and coaches can have the greatest experiences that they can while they're with us.
0: Well, I think that recoil moment stems from a lot of individuals thinking that DE&I is about separating us into groups. And what I love about, we already talked about framing and language. Your language is all stemmed from positivity. That's what keeps running through. Every time you make create a new sentence, it has something to do with bringing us together, something to do about common humanity, something to do about positivity. Maybe there are some out there that don't pursue that, but I love your framing there. That may be a way to take that bit of recoil out, is to continue to frame it and then show how it looks on the ground, where we're bringing positivity, we're bringing people together. So tell us what it looks like on the ground. What are some of the initiatives you've been a part of in the past? What's DE and I on the ground look like?
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that because that's that's one of those things from a framing standpoint where I'm like, I don't even know if I think about that too often. But if I think about the ground level of DE&I, for me, I think about it in terms of making sure everyone's operating from the same playbook. So uh, we t- we've talked on that cringe or recoil moment. And I think a large portion of that stems from people not understanding what DE&I means. If we're going to be successful if my department's going to win in this area, if my university's going to win in this area, we're going to need to define what it means to operate in this space. And I would liken that to the same way that you create a brand. If you have a department or a, a Fortune 500 company, they'll have a mission, they'll have a vision, they may have values that they share publicly or at least internally. And so, when I think about DE and I, I think about it in, in that realm too. How do I ensure operational effectiveness? And first and foremost, that's making sure everybody's on the same page. Maybe a little bit of assimilation in there, you know, sipping the Kool Aid, making sure we're all talking the same talk and walking the same walk. But I think without those community standards, it's really easy to kind of lose your way. And DEI helps ensure that we can focus, not have too much of that recoil, but ultimately create more of a shared community understanding of the standards that we'll abide by as an organization.
0: I think one of the reasons, and I shouldn't play so coy and kind of holier than now there's a part of me that sometimes hears it and goes, oh, what does that mean? It has some of that recoil. And I want to be honest about that. I want to be What's the word I'm looking for? Authentic. 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 I want to be authentic. But I think one of the reasons that it happens is that people hear DE&I and and they think trade-offs. And we talked about this, but we cut our conversation short to save it for today. The idea of trading excellence for opportunity or the idea of sacrificing standards or merit for diversity. I think that's where it comes from. You made the point the first time we talked that you don't think that trade off is explicit. Elaborate on your thoughts around opportunity versus excellence or any of those other trade offs. And then I'll share a bit about mine because there may be some interesting space between us we can explore there too.
1: Yeah. No, and this is a, a great idea that I think we need to explore more and more candidly, especially in conversation, because I think far too often people hear diversity and they're like, oh, our standard is immediately going to drop. Or we're thinking about things from an inclusive mindset that means I don't get my just desserts. And I, I push back on that because I want to know why. if we think that we want to focus more on hiring black identified individuals for our organization or hiring more women into positions of leadership. Why is there a thought that those populations can't bring excellence or can't bring us to whatever that pinnacle is? And is it simply because we just haven't seen it? So it's fear of the unknown? Or is it more of, more of a community-based thing or a social-based standard where we know that those groups are treated differently in the bigger picture of things and what they have to endure, we don't really want to mess with. And those are some of the ideas that I push back on because it's like, why Why don't we want women in leadership roles? Why is it okay for male head coaches to coach women's sports, but you don't see a lot of women in that leadership role on the flip side? You see it in some sport cultures more than others, but I, I just I push back at that. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. I try are. to
0: give the most charitable interpretation as possible until proven otherwise. So if I was going to give someone making that comment, the most charitable interpretation, I would say they're not concerned about giving a black individual or a woman that position. Their concern would stem from a prerequisite that this position go to a black individual or a woman or whatever the category may be. And if that's the case, then statistically speaking, you're shrinking the pool and the chance of you getting the best candidate would shrink. So I think if we saw it in in that way and if that is the charitable interpretation, they're saying, hey, look, I'm fine with whoever gets the job, but I want it to go To those who have the highest grade point average or highest test scores or the most success, I think that may be where they're saying, hey, if we're not looking at those standards, then we may be sacrificing it.
1: And that's interesting, too, because many people could argue that GPA, for example, is not an equitable measurement of success. If we're going to base GPA off of the resources that are available to you at your school, then look at what redistricting and redlining has done to communities of color and their school systems, or what property taxes allow for public education to look like versus others, and, and how that plays a, a role in the generational wealth or the generational impact for certain communities. And so I, I think it's funny to think about that, because I can, I can completely understand that. And I say that as a person who went to a Catholic co-ed college prep school, but that's because I come from a family where they didn't have those opportunities, so they worked really hard to get that. And that's no disrespect to anybody who doesn't have those same opportunities afforded to them. But I acknowledge that in my pursuits and in my perspective, I'm aware of that. But sometimes people don't know what they're missing out on because they haven't had that level of awareness. They didn't even know that opportunity was something that existed. And so we're gauging success based off people who started on third, and I'm still standing in the batter's box trying to get a pitch that I can swing on. And those were just things that you know, they're not afforded to everybody the same when they're born, at least not in our country. And so as you grow through that or as you mature and matriculate through life, those are things that are kind of put on you that you may not have to deal with if you are part of one demographic category over another.
0: I'm totally with you on there. I, I think where we maybe come at this from a different angle is I would be comfortable saying, we are altering the standards, but we're doing it for a purpose. So, yes, we are letting an individual in that doesn't have the GPA, but we're doing it for a purpose. Some of the purposes you just articulated. So, I would say, and you can agree or disagree with me, which I think it will be interesting, is that opportunity for underprepared or underskilled in some cases, or maybe in many cases, holds back the mission. And we can toy with the definition of excellence, which we'll get into. But if you're playing for the Los Angeles Lakers or you're curing cancer or solving climate change, excellence is pretty explicit and we would be sacrificing excellence or intellectual rigor to bring in individuals that are underprepared or underskilled. However, and this is a big however, what you were just getting at, there are other spaces, and I think a great example of these spaces is general education, where surrounding yourself with engaged individuals from different backgrounds, like you said, different perspectives, different experiences makes for a more fulfilling education and a more fulfilling life. And I'll defend that point all day long. I just don't think I would say we're not altering the standards or we're not trading. No, we, we are, but we're doing it for a very real point. And I think if we can have that discussion, then we can figure out which spaces are which, which are the Lakers and you need to be LeBron or close to him to be on the Lakers and which space are general education. Because one of the things I've said before on this podcast is when I got to Rice, there were certainly places where students were way out in front of me. But there were other spaces where I was way out in front of them, and I could bring those experiences and those and those contexts to conversations that they never could. And I, I don't see this disrespectingly, but if your child spent their entire life, both inside and outside of the classroom, in a private school setting, I'm using quotation marks. They have gaping holes in their life education, gaping holes. And so those spaces need to be filled with these diverse voices. And I also would say make opportunity. I think that's where you were going. Also giving opportunity to those. So there was a very verbose way of saying, I think there's some shades of gray where we disagree, but I think the intention is, is pointing the same way.
1: Well, and I love that you share your perspective and I love that we differ in many instances. But I do also want to acknowledge that there are a lot of people in this world who look like you who don't have that same viewpoint who feel like there is a pure way of getting to the top or of maintaining excellence or even defining excellence. And so then the question for me becomes, well, whose definition is it? Who had input in what that definition looks like? Or again, what are the metrics that go into ensuring that this is what excellence looks like for this organization or this this community, this institution, this classroom? Who's defining that? And does everybody have an equitable opportunity to meet those standards or to even be judged on those standards? Because, you know, you were talking about some of the the career paths, like excellence in cancer research or excellence in being a doctor will look one way. I know people say C's to get degrees, but that I don't know if I want the doctor who had C's versus the doctor who got some A's and some things. But by many people's standards, you have dumb jocks who shouldn't be pre-med. And I think an institution like Rice, as well as many other across the country, debunk that, that athletes are dumb jocks or athletes don't want to be pre-med or or just kind of skating through. And I know plenty of athletes, one who's training right now to be an Olympian, who is pre-med. I know, a couple, actually, different sports, a fencer, a basketball player, seen some football players that I've worked with over the years. And I'm okay with those quote unquote dumb jocks being my doctors. I would actually go to them over some people who I know weren't athletes. But just that athlete identity piece makes people feel like mm, I'm, I'm lowering my standard on my doctor, or at least while they're going through class or going through studies, maybe once they finish their athlete identity or their athletic career, that's a different conversation. But why do we treat them differently while they're walking across our campuses as opposed to once they're athlete? career is over once their cleats are hung up.
0: I did a full podcast with Dr. Sandy Parsons on the perception of athletes at elite universities. I mean, I was one of those athletes that was asked to drop classes because, quote unquote, athletes don't do well in my class. However, I also acknowledge I had some peers that earned that, that didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And I will say publicly that I wouldn't have got into rice without being an athlete i did well in school but i didn't do rice well in school so again i think it goes back to there are spaces where you know this doesn't sound very humble but the things that i could bring to a conversation were different and it turns out that we have a lot of athletes at rice that are very smart and can participate in those conversations but i also think that We should be honest when the athletes aren't pulling their weight or when someone when the talent's not there, the ability's not there yet. So I think the hard truth is important. And I feel like I'm rambling here a bit. But I was that kid. And in your specific situation, if you add on the layer of being a black kid or a woman or whoever, someone who doesn't fit in or the professor doesn't look like me, I certainly understand we're layering something much more complex than what I was dealing with.
1: Well, and what you're getting at is that idea of intersectional identities. And what I love about your story and even what you were alluding to with my own is that they show that our experiences aren't monolithic. There's no one stereotypical type of insert demographic category here for a student athlete, for a person. But far too often as a society, we love to kind of whittle people down to labels and stereotypes. It makes it easier for us to process. It makes it easier for us to navigate the world and I say us, but I'm, I'm thinking through myself and would also pose the question to anybody who wants to answer this, like, who's that us? Are the labels really necessary? What, what benefit do I get out of assigning a label to you? And I say this as the linguist, like, yeah, it'll make me be able to process the world better. But is that beneficial to you? Is that beneficial to the opportunities that you could have? Is that limiting the capacity that you may have to make something happen that's going to be really great in this world? We we talked about it earlier. Tell me I can't, and I'll show you I can. But I know many colleagues. I've seen many student athletes over the years who have been labeled as they can't or they shouldn't or mm, I'm not. I don't think that's for you, and that has completely disrupted people's lives. And who knows how much potential they could have had or how much progress they could have helped us all pursue in certain areas, if they were given the opportunity to be their most authentic self, as opposed to labeled or mislabeled as something other.
0: I asked this question to Dr. Parson, so I'll ask it for you, because it is a contradiction that I have a tough time reconciling. To set up the question, inside classrooms at Rice or Notre Dame, there's the academic equivalent of a Notre Dame quarterback. And there's certainly the academic equivalent of a national championship with their research and their goals. I would argue maybe more important than a national championship. Yet Coach Freeman at Notre Dame is not making space for an underprepared or underskilled athlete to quarterback his football team. So why would it be important that a professor give that opportunity to the underprepared or underskilled that Coach Freeman wouldn't give on his football team?
1: Well, I think that depends on what that – level of development is that is needed and what resources we have. I've seen it happen academically. I've seen certain elite academic institutions, maybe not the two that you've mentioned. Again, I can't speak um, fully on the academic side for both of them, but I, I do know elite academic institutions, particularly on the West Coast and East Coast, where I've spent more of my academic career that are set up for more remediation or set up for more support services to be provided that help that student get acclimated or help them through the academic rigor. And it's not that they're not capable. They may have full capability, but maybe it takes them a little bit more time. I see this athletically. I know somebody who needs, you know, a few more reps in practice than others or they need to watch film a little bit more just maybe because they're a visual learner as opposed to an auditory learner. And so I I challenge those thought processes because maybe the way we're teaching it isn't meant for how they're trying to receive it or how they're best equipped to receive it. And I think that's what DE&I allows space for, too. It's, it's, It's that creation of space that says, how do you best learn or how do you best thrive and what resources do we need to provide in order for that to happen? And so I think that's something where, you know, a lot of times we'll think about excellence in a very rigid way. And it's like, well, if you can't do these five things, then you're not excellent. But what if I can do four of them and the fifth one, I just, it takes me a little bit longer than it takes for the others. That doesn't mean I'm any less excellent. I'm just a little different. It's a little diversity in the way that I get things done. And I don't know if we as a society create enough space for that understanding.
0: Yeah. And I think I go back to there are some spaces where that makes sense. And I think Notre Dame football is probably one of those places. (laughs) And there's some spaces where we benefit as a society from altering the standards. and so. Maybe what I'm saying is, is that question I posed to you is a bit apples and oranges, that playing football at Notre Dame and going to a university are apples and oranges. We're talking about two different things, and maybe it's not a fair comparison, but I think it's an interesting contradiction to say, hey, look, this is excellence, and it's helping my football team win, whereas we go over to the classroom, we say, Mr. Professor, you're in a different arena. And yes, the student may be underprepared. They didn't have the opportunities and they're going to take some more time. But in your space, what they can bring does bring benefit in a way. And that's why, again, is it a dicey conversation? Sure. To say, well, which one's the quarterback and which one's not? But that's why the conversations are important to find out where those spaces are, because I do really believe at my core that an engaged individual, someone who is putting in the time and understands how to be productive in a a conversation and how to add value to a classroom but those different experiences and those different points of view are going to make for such a more robust education and going to make for a, a lively life so i don't know if everyone listening buys that and as i say it i don't even know if i completely buy it i would need to spend more time on it but yeah
1: yeah, well, and, and you're getting to that idea of community standards. And again, there, as you've noted, there are certain arenas where, hey, these are the standards. Get with it or get lost. And there are certain areas where in life where these are the standards. But ooh, why are those the standards? Or those might have been the standards for 50 years. Should they change? What's our main goal? And, and you know, I go back to my own personal life and I just think about my purpose and and maybe even uncovering, revealing, or defining my purpose and. I've been able to do that by understanding who I am and what my values are, but that doesn't mean that I haven't changed or I haven't evolved. Who I was when I was 15 is not the same person that I am today. Hopefully, people who've known me that long don't think that. But I, I would just want to make sure that we understand what the main thing is and that we can keep the main thing the main thing. You know, I have that kind of philosophical push, and I think you and I talked about this a little bit too, uh, when in our, in our first conversation is higher education really meant to thrive in a capitalist society? If our value is to get more money or we're going to judge people's worth off of the amount of money they have, how is the pursuit of knowledge really helping or hurting that? And, and what what value systems are we instilling in our students or in our youth when we create those two narratives, which I don't know if they really go hand in hand together.
0: Well, I, and before we leave this subject, I want to be clear to anyone listening, I certainly believe that there are certain academic institutions and circles and classes where merit is everything and society benefits from that. So there should be unnegotiable standards in some spaces. But I would think that that would be more the specialized area of university, whereas general education is a place where more people can come and thrive and better themselves to hopefully someday get into those unique circles within the university where we are reserving those circles for the best and the brightest, however we define that, and we can talk about that. But to be clear, I do think those, and you may disagree with me, but I do think there are some circles where, no, the standards aren't negotiable. You want to be in this classroom contributing, you got to meet these five things. And if you don't, that's where the community has set standards. I I think, again, we've got to have nuance in these conversations. We've got to see shades of gray because they're complex.
1: And I think it's if that's the case, then be okay with what repercussions come. And as our society evolves, as social media becomes a bigger facet to the lived experience, be ready to be called out or be ready for your graphic and statement to not be received the way you thought it was or that one promotional experience was uh, didn't hit the way you thought it should have hit. So again, I think that's completely fine. But just know that as our world continues to evolve, it's it's that thing or that piece for me about change. Everyone wants change, but who wants to change? And as the world around you keeps evolving, are you evolving with it?
0: Well, let's linger on that thought a bit. So what you're saying is like, if you do have certain spaces within academia where you're saying we are very rigid on standards and merit and you have to meet these standards, you're thinking that could be a place where they're not up with the times or could be a place that's problematic?
1: I think so. And I think there are many instances, like we see it when we talk about recruitment and retention of students or recruit and, recruitment and retention of staff, particularly in fields where there aren't a lot of women, like women in STEM or people of color in like architecture or something, just random thoughts that I'm throwing out here. And if you don't address the pipeline problem, if you're not willing to change to address that pipeline problem... Okay, just be okay with the, the backlash that's going to come with that. If you're not willing to meet your people where they are to help them get where you want them to go and where they say they want to go, just be prepared for the consequences. It's well, I think
0: where I would do, I would separate the pipeline problem from these specific circles where we're saying, so the pipeline problem to me would be you need to find a way to have diverse, engaged voices in your general education. And you need to give them access to that. And then at some point, with the resources you provide and their own, what's the word I'm looking for? Their own drive, their own merit, they can find ways into those circles. But I, like I said, I, I want to do more thinking on it. I, I find it interesting your cloud and the view for me. But I'm, I'm fairly certain that there are some places where you're going, hey, we want the best climate scientists in the world, and we don't care where they come from. That's what this place is. Now, the pipeline to get there, I think, is what you're talking about, which I'm totally on board on. But there's some spaces where, like I said, I think giving some underprepared climate scientists or some under-skilled climate scientists access to those circles would likely hold back that mission. So the work has to be done, in my mind, before you get to that circle, if that makes sense.
1: I think I hear what you're saying. And I, you know, for me, as you were talking, I just wonder, again, who's setting that standard of what the best is. So is the best the one that comes from Rice, carte blanche, if they had a 3.75 at Rice, or is it the 4.0 from State U? How are we deciding that? Does the 4.0 outweigh the 3.75? Are there professors a part of this? Is, is it the network? Is it the resources that were available? Is it the internships they had? How did they get those internships? Is all of that factor into it? And, you know, it, again, it's it's great.
0: It's wildly <laughs> complex. And that's why I think these <laughs> conversations are important. Like I said, I guess I'm trying to find the perfect example and I'm struggling. But like I said, maybe it's like the Lakers. You know, we're pretty sure what excellence is on the Lakers. But, you know, maybe maybe we're not. Very interesting conversation. I'm glad we're having. Let's talk about encouraging these type of conversations because the way I see your responsibility is it also includes encouraging discourse around difficult subjects, around nuanced subjects that are absolutely critical. And let's be honest, these conversations can be challenging. You can hear me stumbling over myself in this conversation and some of them are polarizing. So how have you tried to structure conversations on campus on challenging subjects in a way that ensures all voices are comfortable expressing in that authentic way, especially dissenting voices?
1: Yeah, that's a hard one. I'm not going to sugarcoat that for anybody. It is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the first thing that comes to mind is that we have to have it just because it it may be scary or fear-inducing or it's going to cause this crazy backlash. Like, that's all the more reason we should have it, especially when we talk about having a diverse workforce or a diverse team that's trying to win. They're probably thinking it anyway. And as that fear of the unknown creeps in, if I don't know what you're thinking, I'm going to start assuming what you're thinking. And we don't want to have the conversation. So now, based on my previous interactions with you, there's a lot of stereotypes going through my head about what you may be thinking, and it's actual versus perceived. But until we have the conversation. We're all just sitting around trying to figure out who's pointing their finger at who and to what avail. And we're not solving cost. anything. No, we, we're all still freaking out. Our team camaraderie, locker room, actual performance is all probably suffering. And at what cost? We're not going to win the championship because we don't even know how to have a real conversation in the locker room. And so I think at first, if I'm giving any takeaways, have the conversation. If it scares you, have the conversation. If it excites you, have the conversation. But I think one of the things that's really important in having the conversation is how you have the conversation. In many instances, I've had the role of being the outsider that comes in. I'm, I'm the outsider, but like they know me. So there's that piece of it. And I get to play moderator or I get to play facilitator. And one of the things I love to do is to have ground rules, to have community standards or group agreements for how we're going to have the conversation. There's a lot of, I think I feel, or when this happens, this will happen. It could be as simple as thinking about the magic conch and, and some lost boys action going on there. But you need to have some type of group agreement to how that conversation is going to be had. And it also creates that space for something you said earlier about being curious and not being judgmental or assuming the best of intentions. We're going to stumble over things. The way I say it may not be how you receive it. The way I meant it may not be what you receive either. But I think if we're willing to be vulnerable or to just assume the best, those are all things that help with that how. I would recommend also having a person that's outside. So whether it's the coach or the boss or, you know, somebody else. Maybe you're not a part of every conversation, but you need to be a part of some of them. But it's also a lot easier to have that conversation when it's not led by someone we always see or someone who's also affected by it. And I also say that as a person who was affected by many of the conversations that happen in uh, the summer of 2020, because at some point I have to offload or I have to unpack my own backpack so that I can be refreshed and refueled to lead those conversations for others.
0: Well, I, What I hear too is the importance of leadership. Leadership has to create environments that are suitable for these type of conversations. This may or may not be helpful, but one of the things I try to encourage in my professional and personal life, but certainly when I've led companies or a company, is encouraging what I call professional dissent. And anyone who's worked with me knows what this is, but I try to create environments where others can be curious, where others can question, where others can push back when appropriate. Because I think whether it's within a sports team or a company or an individual or a country for that matter, disagreement is a necessary ingredient for progress. And the only way to know if your idea on how this team's gonna win or how this company's gonna win or how this country's gonna win is good is for it to stand up to dissenting opinions. Leadership has to create that environment. We need voices like your own. So I've tried to create those environments to set up those conversations. And so people know, oh, no, no, we can respectfully disagree. Let's set aside smug, disrespectful behavior and focus on respectful dissent, professional dissent. That's why I was very clear. I didn't just say dissent, I'd say respectful (laughs) dissent. But that environment has to be created.
1: Yeah. And it has to be created far before something wrong happens. You know, I think there's that reactive response, especially if I think about you know the summer of 2020. It was like, oh, crap, now we need to face this or face backlash. I push back on a lot of organizations that I've worked with or even consultants who think about coming in. And I'm like, well, what are, what were you doing before this? or now that some time has passed, what have you done since? It's really easy to to have the conversation or to create the graphic or to you know bring in the speaker when it's trending. It's sexy then. It's fun then. It's, it's what we need to do then. But what are you doing when no one's watching?
0: Yeah. And I want to get into 2020, but I'm going to hold off for a second. This is maybe a, a controversial topic too, but do you believe there are some conversations that just should not take place on campus or should only be had by certain people on campus?
1: Well, I would, you know, I, I kind of want to pick your brain and say, what are those things that you're thinking? Because I feel like there's a space and a place for everything. But, you know, who's invited, when it happens, how it happens. Is I was going to say important. that
0: exact same thing. Uh, my point is there's a time and a place for everything. And consequential dialogue should be handled respectfully but my inclination would be i'm a firm believer that all ideas should be open to debate and even criticism no idea or organization should be above reproach however there are time and places there is something as respect and dignity and honor and people should be treated that way i do believe that college is somewhat a a gem for your mind i think van jones has a great quote around that actually i know he does and I think we should encourage that dialogue in the type of environments you were just describing, in, the, in these positive, inclusive environments. Because one of the reasons I'm asking that is I want to have these conversations as a consequence. And some of my advisors have said, look, people are going to come and say, I don't have anything to hear from a, a white man on this. And that's something you need to grapple with and think about. Do you have any of those thoughts on like, hey, there really are spaces where your voice is not needed, or it really doesn't need to take place here. Do you have those thoughts? And if you don't want to answer, we don't have to go into this. But
1: yeah, no, it's interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking about just per- the power of perspective. Like there may be instances where I know I've I've facilitated a conversation and I've refrained from providing perspective because I didn't want the thought to be that I was speaking for everyone. In as the token or a token of, of a specific demographic category, it's often the burden on me to represent everyone. And I'm like, well, this is my experience. Like,
0: you're an individual, this was just
1: JP, <laughs> not, you know, JP speaking on behalf of all young black women or whatever, as it relates to our organization. And then as you were also sharing your perspective, I thought about um, an organization that I've I know a colleague who works with them, and they are primarily white, and they work in the art and entertainment space. So there's this just kind of like a historical backing of what success looks like for that organization. And there's a small community of color on a very small staff, but because of a consultant firm that they were working with, they've created this identity where they are um, what was it, like a, a white supremacist organization, just based on the the structures of, Wait, of how they've done the- this. They, they've they been told that they're operating oh, okay. in a way that is like a white supremacist organization. And so the white identifying staff decided we're going to meet without the people of color because we don't want the burden to be on them to have race-based conversations. And I'm hearing this story and I'm just like, okay, do. <laughs> So we removed the people of color and didn't invite them to the staff meeting. And if there's a, it's, let's say it's a team of ten people and three of them are people of color, so we essentially decided to have meetings without the people of color.
0: It's a it's a slippery <laughs> slope. I, I and there are some meetings that I think exclude white people. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I can get on board with there's a time and there's a place and there's a thing called respect where my voice is not needed what i what i would say to give you my perspective i can't get on board with is kind of where you were going is that at its core we're saying someone can't participate in one of the most important or consequential conversations of our time because of their gender or because of their skin color but because of whatever i think that that is wildly reductive and superficial and i think if you walk that to its logical conclusion it gets pretty ugly and pretty dangerous but that's a difference between you don't get to participate and this is a circle that's designed for these people the story you just told maybe cringe a bit too yeah. i need more context <laughs> but at its core i believe rational thought should lead these movements for change not superficial features so if anyone is pointing and saying no superficial features are going to lead this movement I would take issue with that and say, hey, I need to push back there. I really believe that ideas are helpful or hurtful or true or false, regardless of who thinks them. But again, it's another really nuanced gray area that there may be some spaces. Again, we keep going back to this spaces term <laughs> where it is my time to sit here and listen. As long as the broader context is everyone gets their voice heard in this conversation, that's doing it in a respectful way.
1: Well, it's, it's funny that that's the way you want to end that one, because I, I agree with that thought. And I was thinking of an organization that I'm a part of called Women Leaders in College Sports. And I remember being earlier in my career just thinking like, ah, I don't know if this is the organization for me. I don't want to be a part of women in sports who are just sitting around singing Kumbaya. I knew nothing about the organization at the time. And I was just like, ah, are they bashing men in this space? Like, well, I, I didn't know. And so again, with that If it's unknown, you're not checking it, you're not having the conversation, I have a very vivid imagination. I could have gone completely left with it. But I had my first event, I experienced things, and now fast forward several years into it, not only is the organization primarily to champion women, but there are male members, there are male champions of that space. Because I think it's important to know that if women could cure all of the ailments of women in sports, they would have done it already if the critical mass that we have which is not that high but it exists if it was already equipped to to navigate all the barriers to break all the glass ceilings to to do everything it needed to do it would have happened already we can't do this as one demographic as one silo so you, given the the makeup of college sports or professional sports and who were in leadership positions, you needed other champions. You needed male champions, particularly in this instance, to help break those barriers down too. And to see that as a partnership, as a collaborative, as opposed to just women trying to battery ram their way in, that's not helpful. There's internal and external mechanisms and power structures that needed to be worked with and massaged in order to make this a more palatable environment for all involved.
0: I I like that. And I I often say progress means we're all coming. Mm-hmm. And if your definition of progress is 30 or 40% of us are coming, I think you're fooling yourself, which means people you disagree with are coming. People that don't look like you are coming. People, as we talked about earlier, with different backgrounds and experiences are coming. And whether we're talking about coming into a university or, you know, some sort of social change, progress means we're all coming. And we're going to get to that too. How let's Let's move into that, how we how we disagree, how we work with people we disagree with. How do you think we should approach disagreements or how do you tell students when they vehemently disagree with someone, passionately disagree with someone, maybe they run into an idea that they find intellectually offensive. How do you teach them how to disagree? How do you tell teach them to react in those moments?
1: Yeah, it's funny as you were talking about that, I, I want to take a, a different approach first because as you were talking about disagreement, I was thinking about staff makeup. I have younger staff maybe like 10 years younger than me, five years younger than me, different races, different genders, different religious practices. And I want them in the room. I want them to disagree with me because they see the world differently. And the way they see the world helps me understand how other people are going to receive it. If I just have my tunnel vision, this like this is a JP show, I'm never going to be able to serve the hundreds of people who are my primary stakeholders. I'm never going to meet my audience where they are and help us get where we want to go. So when I think about disagreement, I love it. Personally, I want you to disagree with me. It also makes me feel like I am not the smartest person in the room. Whenever I walk into a room and somebody says, ooh, you have a lot of degrees or ooh, you went here. I'm like, ah, don't, don't do not do that. <laughs> I, I welcome the differing perspectives or the avid reader who just saw something in a blog and, and wants to pick my brain about it. I welcome those moments where someone says, hey, I don't know this, but you seem like you might have some thoughts about it. Let's let's talk about it. And I will be the first to tell you I am not the expert. And I don't know if I really want to be. I fashion myself as a generalist in many instances. I just know a lot about a wide array of things and, and that's helped me be successful so far. So I think I'm going to keep with that philosophy. But I think when I think about my students and helping them understand things, especially at the elite academic level, there's that perfectionist identity that they're battling. They are used to having a checklist. They're used to having the right answer. They have to be right. They have to make the right move. And they have to be liked, too, if I add the social media factor into, into what this generation experiences. And that's a fun one to try and break down. And I get to do it with a lot of questions. Again, coming from that space of curiosity over judgment, I get to do it by being visible and accessible to them. You know, would you believe somebody was always there for you if you never saw them? And so it's often the things that I do when they don't need me that I think create that space for them, create that trust in me for them to be vulnerable in a way that wouldn't happen if I just only showed up when something wrong was going on. So in the spaces where you know it's a program that we're going to have this conversation that's going to be really touchy or in the wake of a tragedy and we need to kind of hash it out and figure out what the appropriate actions are I, I welcome the moments where somebody says that's not my political ideology or that's not my religious belief or that's not how I was raised because that allows us to get stronger in in how we come together as a team which ultimately makes those wins those Actual wins and losses, or those moments of walking across the stage and celebrating life accomplishments, a bit more sweeter in my perspective. Well,
0: I think that's pretty powerful what you just said because I think it's rare. I don't think everyone welcomes disagreement around ideas they're passionate about. That is a hard thing, but I think it goes back to what you said earlier about seeing each other as humans first, not a monolith, instituting that default setting of charitable interpretations until proven differently striving to see the best in one another i guess is a simple way to say it and we've been talking the whole time about creating that space for shades of gray for subtlety i think one of the things that it sounds like you've gotten rid of in your spaces where you're in leadership is this you're either all with me or you're all against me psychologists would tell you that's binary thinking it's a cognitive distortion more than that in layman's terms it's not how life works let's let's do this. I do want to get your thoughts a little more. When you have a student that comes in and goes, this is ideologically offensive to me. I'm not interested in being a part. How, how do you advise them to react? What are, the, what are the thoughts that you go to when you say, hey, here's how I would advise you to react in these situations?
1: Yeah. Well, I think my first responsibility in that moment is to say thank you to them for sharing that with me. They certainly don't have to. I tell my students a lot, you know, they don't pay me enough to judge. So if you want to slide me a few dollars, maybe we can talk
0: about it. I'll judge you if you want to slide me some dollars.
1: (laughs) I'm happy to do that for you if that's what you want to pay for. But that comes at a premium. I think it's, again, for me, it's about that acknowledging that they didn't have to share that with me. They could have easily sat in the back of the room, mad at the world, not shown up. I wouldn't have known any different. Right. I might have sent the SWAT after them to try and figure out what was going on or, you know, in the case of a student athlete, engage coach and try and work through it that way. But I think my first responsibility is to thank them for sharing that with me, but then also to ask how, ask why, ask more of those probing questions that help me understand because what i found particularly with you know the social or political conversations a lot of times it's just that our labels don't have the same nomenclature my definition of what liberal means may not match your definition of liberal my definition of republican may not match yours or my definition of what black lives matter may not be what you know it to be so helping or asking those probing questions Uh, Gives me the space to kind of diagnose the problem from my own lens and better figure out if that's really the the core issue or if it's something else that's just been mislabeled. And so I think when you do that, that helps to ensure that we're all operating out of that same playbook, kind of referencing what I mentioned before. Because I think if I just take it at carte blanche, like this is what they said, so that's exactly what that means, Mm, we're still figuring it out.
0: You're encouraging them to see nuance, to see shades of gray. But which I think is a pretty cool thing. Again, I still like there's some rarity there and I think there's a lot of power in that. One of the things I had a previous guest named Kenny Thompson Jr. who ran logistics for President Obama. He said, Big problems don't get solved by one party. They don't get solved by one country. Maybe I'll cut this out, but I want to tell you this story he said. It made me think when I brought him up. Kenny came in with the Obama administration and one of my questions from him was Just curiosity, like, how the hell do you know how to turn the lights on in the White House? Like, who (laughs) trained? Yeah. Thinking he was going to say, well, well, there's this training seminar, and I was just curious to hear about it. But that's not what he said. What he said shocked me, JP. He said, Clay, Mm -hmm. we couldn't have been as successful as we were without the Bush administration. He said for three months between election day and inauguration day, the Bush administration answered their phones at midnight. They drew up plans. They wrote memos. They opened up their contact list for three full months. And I was blown away because I thought I was going to hear, well, there's these people that are always there and they train you, they give you tours. And it was like, no, it was two administrations diametrically opposed of one another that said, we're going to put that aside and we're going to figure out how to help the next president be successful. And I thought like, what, like, this This wasn't that long ago, but yeah. what a beautiful sentiment, and it kind of goes to this thing of, hey, we're going to have to be a team, and we're going to have to work together, and I I, I think I told him on the podcast, I'm like, that's how it should be, I mean, it really should be, but that really is not, where. probably not going to stay in this conversation, but I thought it was such a powerful story, and kind of revolves around what we're talking about, about people that have differences working together.
1: But I love that in a sporting sense, or I love that in the collegiate landscape, because, there are going to be people who came in before me and I can't I can only be as successful as their foundation, their groundwork, whatever they went through, their experiences allows me to be. If my team won the national championship last year, sure, it may be easier for me to repeat, especially if many of them come back. But the mentorship or the structure that those who were on the team last year leave behind, the, the culture, the essence of it, the community standards, that all helps me be successful moving forward, and so I, I love that story just because it's it's a it's as much about acknowledging where we have been, right, wrong, or indifferent, and really embracing where we are, but also being focused on where we're trying to go and being aligned around where we're trying to go and trying to go together.
0: That's one of the great things about sports is you learn to win together and with people that you are different than you have different backgrounds, different religions, different political point of views. I think that's really cool. Well, let's go into our our last section here, which is the activism on campus that you alluded to earlier. In 2020, activism became ubiquitous everywhere, but certainly on campus. And I think it's pretty much uncontroversial to say that it was polarizing and difficult. So what did it feel like to be in the middle of that? What was your experience just figuring out a way forward and playing mediator at times?
1: Yeah, playing mediator, and I'll even say masking up as mediator, because there were instances where it was personal to me, but then there was a professional responsibility that I had. Somebody will say something about Black Lives Matter, and whether you're talking about the movement or you're talking about the moment, as a person who identifies as Black, sometimes it was hard to not take certain statements and and see those as personal. But then I also had the responsibility of helping our Black identified students, coaches, and staff process their own thoughts and helping our leadership team engage with our students, coaches, and staff appropriately, regardless of race. I think of George Floyd's killing and just how that played out on a national stage, but also the response that came immediately from some of our head coaches who were like, We got to address this with our team or we got to talk about it. and, And I don't know how. Maybe you should talk about it. And I was like, well, coach, respectfully, no. This is the first team meeting this year or this was the first one that I'm invited to maybe in in that summer period and I was like, "Yeah, I can't have that conversation with your team, but I can help you have that conversation with your team because I can't be the person who's only called in when something bad happens or when something serious goes down. You know, that's not the relationship that I wanted to have. That's not the standard that I wanted to to set. And if I think about the way we responded as an athletic department, the way I responded as an individual, I'm very much focused on my people. And if my people are okay, then I'll be okay. And that last part couldn't be more wrong as time went on because I spent so much time prioritizing other people's clarity or comfort or success in that space and navigating the difficulty that I think it was it was a distraction to where I didn't have to process it on my own. And the moments where I was faced with dealing it on my own, those were more powerful moments that I probably dealt with in silence or dealt with with a community outside of my work community because I needed to have that resetting and that You refraction. need to put your
0: mask on first before I did. you help your kids. Yeah. I
1: did. and And that phrase, that very phrase was something that was said to me early on in the pandemic, but more so early on in the uh, social justice revitalization that really hit different for me. And I was like, yeah, I'm that one person who's running around putting everybody else's mask on and my air getting thinner in the moments where we were going to go into a conversation and I gave myself the space to check how I felt about that team culture or that sport culture or what was going on on campus at that time. Those were the moments where we could be a little bit more fruitful, a little bit more vulnerable, and a little bit more progressive in my mind, um, with that the desired outcome. So each sport um, was able to have conversations or engage in some type of student-led activism in that space, but also with some framework from our athletic department under the Allen initiative. And so many teams chose to just keep it simple and, and think about Allen and what the rice community standards were going to be. Some took it a step further and focused primarily on racial equity or for some of our sports they wanted to add that intersectional identity with race and gender and what that meant to their sport cultures. Some took cues from the professional ranks and you know that made sense for their their sport cultures as well. And so my role was really just supporting them and helping them identify what that that meant. What that looked like and what that looked like in the context of Rice University, because what the NBA does doesn't mean that's inherently what we can do here or what the NFL does or Major League Soccer or you name it. So there was a lot of creation of space, both personally and professionally, but then also socially for people to grieve, to be angry, to be confused and ultimately to be vulnerable. So that we could be stronger together.
0: Yeah, it was a an interesting time. That's not the right adjective, but I'm struggling to find it. But I was helping to run a company and the day after George Floyd died, our six foot six former University of Texas basketball player who worked for us walked into my office and on the verge of tears was saying, What are we gonna do as a company? and I guess the thing it highlighted for me is how different each of us see this and how emotionally it was affecting others differently. But it was one of those things where what's our role as a company versus what's our role to the client versus to our people versus, you know, should the company be penalized? We're going to, sit out days and our clients are going to be penalized or hey we can do something that's really powerful without it was such a time of uncharted territory that's why i i had the word path in my question is like we were walking this path that hadn't been walked before and you were right in the middle of it and you probably had teams that were disagreeing with each other that were angry with one another and it just had to be a challenging time for sure
1: yeah. And, you know, I don't even know if I can say there were teams, especially when you look at let's focus on race, the racial makeup of our student athlete population. There might have been one or two individuals. There might have been, a they don't identify as a token, but in the philosophical sense, there's a token here or there who's suffering in silence. And that phrase, suffering in silence, is not something that I do well, and it's not something that I condone in, in any of the spaces that I occupy. And so for me, I think about What does it look like to be tolerant versus what does it look like to be accepting? There was a a big period of time, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, where tolerance was the standard. It's like, yep, nope, we tolerate you. It's okay. You might be going through something. You don't have to tell us what it is. Just tolerate that you might need a day or you might need some time or you might be experiencing something different. But I think where we are as a society, and particularly with the population that I serve as a primary stakeholder, acceptance is more important. And it, it can be acceptance of who I am or how I'm feeling, but that verbal acknowledgement that they may be going through something and that they is just them as an individual, not they as a demographic category, is, is really needed. They want to be seen, but they might not show up physically. They want to be heard, but they might not speak. And so understanding the differences in the multi-generational workspace that we have now and in the multi-generational stakeholder environment that I have now is really important in doing these these types of conversations or this type of work. And it's one of those things where yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about this visually and there's a path and I'm looking out in front of me and there's about four different roads. and I can walk down each of them, but I'm also thinking behind me and there's eight more that came up to where I am right now. And somehow all of these roads are converging on the same space and I'm standing at the center of it. And that's kind of how I felt where there were so many people asking, well, how do we have this conversation? Why do we need to talk about this? Or what does this actually mean? And you know, one of my students said it more pointedly in one of our team conversations, Google is free. You're asking me as a black person how I felt about X or Y or Z and you could look that one up on your own or you want me to educate you on what it's like to be black in America, but only in the face of trauma why can't I be uplifted or why can't I be celebrated for who I am beyond the athletic space? Like, why is it so odd to be black and be creative or be black and be good at math or whatever? And and so to create spaces for that dialogue that, yeah, it might have come out angry in, in the first few conversations or, yeah, it might have been accompanied by tears for some. That's OK. I needed to make sure people knew that it was okay to have that range of emotions and to also not be seen as one type of good person or one type of bad person. But once we were able to come together and have those conversations, that's where the real growth occurred.
0: Hopefully, there were teammates that acknowledged what they were going through and saw them as a human being, as someone who's good at math or someone hopefully I feel like Rice is a place like that is it am I wrong was there is Rice a place where where people of all races are being seen as an individual as a human being that's more than their skin color or what I mean I I hope that's and I'll probably cut this out but I hope
1: <laughs> Well you know one of the things I appreciate most about Rice especially in the last 2 years is that or really 3 years now at this point is that it's been an institution that's been willing to grapple with its own past So knowing the charter documents and knowing more and more about the story, the life and legacy of William Marsh Rice and what that means for students, coaches, staff, faculty today, you know, I've always appreciated that Rice has just been willing to grapple with it because there's no sweeping solution. When I think about my student athletes in particular, there were some who felt more supported and maybe even more empowered during the height of social justice revitalizations and reawakenings and just the movements, the marches, all of that went down in the summer of 2020, there are some who felt more empowered to say, you support me athletically, but not any other way. So you're the first one to text me or post on social media when I get first place in this or when I win in this category. But I don't get that when this negative thing happens, when I don't do well on a test, or when a family member passes, or when somebody who look, looks like me is gunned down while running in a neighborhood. You know, they felt more equipped to be able to say that and to push for change in a more positive way. And although it was something that was super negative in terms of, the loss of lives, because it wasn't just George Floyd. You had Ahmaud Arbery, you had Breonna Taylor, and you've had countless other people before them who have kind of laid the foundation for this. But those are all people who are student athletes, particularly our Black student athletes, who are saying, those could have been me. And now that you've seen this play out in a, in a national way, in an international way, how do we work together to fix this?
0: A little different line of questioning around that. You mentioned Black Lives Matter, which on its face, it's a statement, which if you don't agree with that statement, then I think that's a time and a place I'm not going to pursue. The ch- I'm not going <laughs> to meet you there. I'm not interested. It's clear.
1: Yeah.
0: But it's we know it's not just a statement. It's a organization. It has its own tactics and rhetoric. It's fairly partisan. So I'm wondering, given the social capital at stake, I, I assume some students were in a position where they may feel compelled to act. Did you and administration have any concern about kind of group think or compelled behavior based on, Hey, I support my teammates, but I'm not on board with all the tactics or all the rhetoric or all the measures, but yet I feel compelled to act in line with the group. Was that discussion taken at any point?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what is expected when you start talking about teams. You know, I think about football's team unity March and just the student-led initiative, student activism piece of that, but then also working with the students to make sure that their message wasn't lost. You know, they wore T-shirts that said Black Lives Matter on them as a team marching across campus. And they weren't talking about the movement, but they were talking about their locker room, their unity, their brotherhood, their team values. And there's videos from that day. You know, we captured media, local media came out to be a part of it. Uh, and, And I think it's really important to understand back to that playbook analogy we had earlier, what was their definition of that phrase? What was the reason they wanted to have a unity march? Why did they call it a unity march? And many times those displays of activism go without people understanding what the real intent is. You know, I think a lot of the conversation we have nationally or the the discourse and the disconcerning discourse is about Colin Kaepernick and kneeling. Well, what does kneeling actually mean? And is it disrespectful? Is it reverent? Is it prayerful? Is it actually religious and spiritual? And did anybody actually ask Cap? And at what point did his message get lost? and how and why. And so those questions, those conversations happened, especially with our larger teams. It was a little easier to have it with a team of five to eight people as opposed to a team of 40 to 100 people, but we had them. Did Just- you
0: have some student athletes that were not comfortable wearing the shirt and yep. stood up? How did those conversations go down? How were they approached? Were they demonized? Was it, was it a situation where they felt comfortable sharing or
1: yeah, were they demonized is where I want to start because the answer is no. Awesome. They you can't. I mean, it's, it's touchy. Was it, it hard. Though, it's that we talked pri- we
0: talked prior about, what's the Orlando Magic guy, Jonathan Isaac Orlando Magic. We talked about when he decided not to wear a shirt and kneel and the questions in the post game were like, do you not believe, very smugly, do you not believe Black Lives Matter? And I think we both kind of agreed that that's, an unhealthy kind of condescending environment where yep. per, where progress does not follow. Yeah. And so I, I imagine in your position going, hey, now we've got a movement that is, you may disagree with me, but I, I think it's pretty clear it's somewhat partisan. You may have some students that say, I'm with you, my brothers and my sisters on this team, but I I don't want to support this. And then all of a sudden it gets really, really complex, really fast and JP gets to be in the middle of <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, I just <laughs> JP's thought, called in. It's got to be interesting because I will say, I, I'm, to be frank, I worry about any space where the applied message is "be quiet and fall in line." That's yep. a bit authoritarian for me, and that concerns me a bit. If I'm being honest, you know, where a student may be up against promoting an organization that they disagree with their tactics, but they're Going to be socially crucified if they don't. So I, I was curious how you guys dealt with that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So even beyond the socio political or sociocultural spaces, that's never been my mo. You know, I I always want our students to make the most informed decisions for their lives. I don't have to live with the the ramifications or the outcomes, right? So I don't don't tell you to do X, Y, and Z in order to get this job because that may not work for you. I'll give you guidance. I'll give you strongly worded recommendations and suggestions. And I will ask you questions so that you can ultimately come to that informed decision on your own. But I can never say, do this exactly this way because I don't have to live with the choices that you make or don't make. I think about, this conversation and and what you just said in the context of the soccer team you know they they decided as a group that we're going to kneel during the national anthem and there were a few players who said i can't maybe it's because of my family thoughts or my tie to the military or some other reason but we created the space albeit very hard to create that space because we couldn't have the conversation in person we had to have it via zoom but they had that conversation. We had the, that dialogue and people pushed back. And I'll tell you, I even went into that conversation thinking that it was going to be a different split where more people didn't want to kneel as opposed to those who did. And they blew me away a little bit with, with how they uh, came to that conversation. But I think uh, one of the outcomes of that was we decided we were going to make a statement as a group. And, it, it, and not a statement for the public, but it was more of a statement to say, Let's align ourselves. We know some people want to kneel. We know some people want to stand. But as a program, as a team, as a culture, this is what this means to us or this is how we arrived at this decision. And among many other things, I don't want to take away from what that team went through and what they did in that year. But they ended that season at the NCAAs you know, winning their first tournament games in program history. And so to to kind of look at where we were at the beginning of the year, but also look at the support that they had coming together as a group. And, you know, some of that was years in the making, but it could have gone very wrong very quickly. It's going wrong with
0: adults <laughs> all over the country, JP. That's what I'm I point. pointing. I yeah. think it's admirable that a group of 18 to 22 year olds were able to figure it out and figure out a way to win together and respect each other. Whereas, Adults all over the nation, forget the nation, all over the world yeah. can't do it. I, yeah. And I kept thinking when you were talking is that to give you some kudos, you had laid the groundwork of, we talked about this earlier, everything you say is about positivity and inclusion. And if you lay that groundwork, I think you've you've done the work on the front end. You're still going to have these conversations where if, if someone steps up and say, hey, I don't want to wear that shirt, it may go bad, but there is a space for this conversation. There's a leader going back to leadership for this conversation. I try to remind people, especially young people, that you can be stubborn on a vision while being flexible on the details. You can be stubborn on an end while being flexible on the means. If you've created an environment where that can happen, which you've done on the front end, it sounds like Rice had a little easier time than it than most <laughs> most adults around the country to be honest.
1: Well, and I can't take all the credit, you know, when I look at our teams, it's it starts at the top with the head coaches, but then also with our athletic director and with our university president and the support that's been afforded there. Nothing that happened in the athletic department went off by its own little silo. There was uh, campus administration support and involvement with that process and and honestly, trust where they said, nope, they're going to be thoughtful and intentional. We'll let them handle this. Just keep us in the loop. And so I'm thankful to Joe Carlgaard, to our president in in university administration for saying, she's thoughtful. She's got this. We'll let her go. But then also asking me those questions along the way to make sure that we were being as inclusive and as intentional as, as we could.
0: When we first talked, we talked about the difference between hearing and listening, which I think is important in this conversation. So I want you to walk us through the difference and kind of end around what is that difference and whether you think I did a good job listening today.
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny because people don't usually ask me this. I get to ask that in my recruiting pitch. You know, we make it really interactive. Coach Bloomgren loved that uh, when I got to meet with his recruits. But it's funny because I don't think people think about it often. It's like, no, 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 I hear you. Or I'm listening and we're, especially in today's world, I'm I'm lucky my phone and my Apple watch and iPads and whatever aren't dinging all over the place. But, you know, what does it mean to hear somebody and what does it mean to listen to someone? And I tell my younger staff all the time, don't just tell me you heard me, show me you listened. So I very much see those things as hearing being something kind of passive. It's a blip in the distance, you know, yeah, 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 mumbles. Lots of things can happen. It's, It's very passive listening is action-oriented. It's, it's intentional. It's deliberate. It is focused. And so when you think about those things in the context of building relationships with people, hearing, I don't know what the level of investment is with our relationship, but listening is engaging. It's purposeful. It's intentional. It's action-oriented and probably more sustaining than just what I heard you know, I think it's really important to to know those differences, but also to act accordingly when you think about having crucial conversations with people, because you can get a lot more done growth and progress wise when you think about listening over here. I
0: love it. I love it. And I, I like you, JP. I think that's pretty obvious. <laughs> I wish you nothing but success at Notre Dame. I think you're the type of individual that should be in the middle of these type of conversations because you have a desire to find that understanding and to bring people together. I, I heard someone smart once say that nearly all social progress in the history of the world was solved by emphasizing common humanity, by bringing people together, not dividing us. And I hope there's more voices like yours to, to do that, to bring people together. So thank you for being a part of this. I, I hope you enjoyed your time.
1: Thank you, Clay. I appreciate the opportunity. And if we can continue the conversations moving forward, I'm sure we'll continue to grow together.
0: Let's do it. All right.